This is KZYX Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio, tonight broadcasting from the MCOE studio in Ukiah, California. Support for KZYX comes from our members and the Skunk Train. The Skunk Train announces, announced the Pumpkin Train, observing social distancing and face mask requirements, boarding in Willits and Fort Bragg, passengers ride through redwood forests, mountain meadows, and over trestles. Rail bikes are also running, limited to six tours a day. For reservations and additional information, 964-6371 or skunktrain.com. Stay tuned now for a special fifth Thursday community conversation. KZYX listeners, this is Alicia Littletree-Bales uh, broadcasting again from the MCOE studio in Ukiah, California. And every once in a while, we have uh, an open time slot on a fifth Thursday or a fifth uh, day of the month. Uh, and it's a chance to just have sort of an incidental conversation about whatever is of interest uh, in the community. And tonight, of course, what is of interest uh, to many, many, many of us, and hopefully a majority of us, is the upcoming election. So tonight I have invited uh, an old friend, an old comrade, Erica Edelson, who's a social justice activist and community organizer, author of Beyond Contempt, How Liberals Can Communicate Across the Great Divide. And also, uh, Erica is working on efforts to combat voter suppression during this current November 3rd election, our fall election here coming up. So welcome, Erica, to KZYX. Thank you for joining Joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I just moved up to Ukiah from Berkeley last month, and so it's really wonderful to connect with what is now my very own local radio station. So thanks for having me. All right. Well, it's a total thrill for <laughs> for me and for our community to get to have you be part of part of us here in Mendocino County, and you have just a lifetime of experience with social justice organizing um, and work. I first met you, of course, back in, gosh, I don't even know, mid-90s? Uh, when you were an attorney and, and working on the um, Barry versus the FBI case, Judy Barry's case against the FBI, and you were one of the case uh, attorneys on that civil rights case. But you have done a whole yeah. lot of, of activism. Um, can bef Before we get into the voter suppression work that, you, that you're working on, um, can you just talk a little bit about your, your background and how you became an activist? Sure. <laughs> I, I guess question. I'm going to have to go all the way back to 1985 when I was a, a tender young 17-year-old starting college in New York City. Um, and I remember very clearly one night going to a presentation that um, some folks from the nuclear freeze movement were hosting on campus. And they did this absolutely incredible demonstration. Uh, I'll try and describe it. It's much more impactful. It's like an audio demonstration, but I'll try to describe it. What they did was they said, they talked about the threat of, of nuclear war and, and, they, and they had a metal bucket filled with BBs. And they said, okay, this the BBs in this bucket represent all of the combined firepower of World War II, including the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they poured these BBs into another metal bucket. And it was just like this sound, like ping, 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 ping. And it went on for kind of a long time, and it was disturbing. And then they said, oh, now we're going to have this other bucket of BBs that represents the combined firepower of all existing nuclear weapons on the planet now. And they started pouring 
And it was actually multiple buckets and it went on and on and on and on. And it was just so incredibly impactful to me. I had barely even knew about the issue. And then, you know, what I did know about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and so it hit me really hard and I was an immediate convert to the nuclear freeze movement and got very involved um, on campus with that and with anti-militarism organizing more generally. Um, so, you know, I was a campus activist involved in lots of different issues in addition to the freeze, reproductive rights, we were doing some eviction defense because our university, Columbia, was like, always trying to evict people. They, they owned a lot of the real estate in Manhattan. They were trying to evict people. We were doing some eviction defense some advocacy on behalf of homeless people. This was now the 19, late 1980s when the homelessness crisis was really, really exploding in New York City. And I think that also kind of like the BB demonstration, that was incredibly impactful for someone my age who had grown up in a fairly affluent suburb and um, had probably never even encountered a homeless person. And now all of a sudden there were so many people so, so visibly suffering such like a level of misery that I would have never even imagined. Um, so that's, yeah, I mean, it was those early experiences that I think made me feel really committed, sort of gave me a, instilled in me a lifelong kind of sense of responsibility just to do whatever I could um, on, on certain, on whatever, on whatever issue I felt like I could in some way make a, a contribution toward. Um, over the years, that led me into working on a number of different issues. Um, and then, yes, and then the, the Judy Berry case, that was that was certainly part of it back in the 90s. Um, around that time, on kind of the environmental front, I was also working with an organization that is sadly now defunct called Project Underground that worked with supporting indigenous communities around the world that were resisting oil and mining development on their land. Um, so that that was another thing. And most recently, I've been involved in the the community choice energy movement, which I think probably most people who live in Mendocino County might be aware of it because if I'm not mistaken, most people in Mendocino County, unless you unless you live in the city of Ukiah, where I know you have your own electric utility, I think most people in Mendo are are uh, customers of Sonoma Clean Power. Is that right? Uh, I think it's the city of Ukiah who is uh, connected with the Sonoma Clean Power, and a lot of the county is PG&E, actually. Yeah. Well, I think people have, the idea is for people to have a choice. So that's right. what the, the community choice energy movement that I got involved in. By the way, your voice is kind of going out on me. I hope I hope mine's not. No, you too. sound great. You sound good. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Um, yeah, so community choice energy is... Um, it's, it's in California where a county or, or several counties or cities can come together and set up a public not-for-profit agency that provides electricity to all of the residential and business customers in their area. And then um, people have the option of switching out of that and, and going back to PG&E if for some strange reason they would want to do that. But very few people do do that because what the community choice agencies have been able to do very effectively is offer a cleaner mix of electricity at a lower rate than PG&E. So it's, it's like a pretty strong value proposition for most people, even if they don't care about the environment much. It's, uh, it usually costs them less. Um, and ultimately, the hope with those programs is that they can become engines of community development and green job creation. Um, part of the work that I do as an advocate is really trying to urge the programs. Once we get them up and running, that's step one, is to get, to get them to form. Um, but then once they're up and running, to really try and get them to develop their own distributed local generating facilities rather than just like contracting for uh, renewable power on the open market that might come from far away or might come from a massive solar farm in the desert that has environmental impacts. Um, 
So we're really we're really trying to get them to develop new local facilities for m- many reasons, um, including the the prospect of of local job creation, which is so incredibly needed, always has been, and now more than ever. What does that, so that, that what does up, that energy that choice up to the present? What does that energy choice activism, what has that looked like for you? You've been living in the Bay Area for decades now. Have you been working on this down in Berkeley? Yeah, so I was part of getting um, Alameda County to form a program. Um, and uh, But I also work with a statewide organization called the California Alliance for Community Energy. And we support um, people in areas where like, they don't have a program yet and they're trying to get one. And so we support their efforts to form one. At this point, it's the dominant form of electricity provision in California, which I know sounds kind of amazing because it's sort of been like a stealth movement mm-hmm. that really, really expanded exponentially in the last few years. I think there's 19 programs now serving more than half the population of California. Um, so it's it's like the default electricity provider. Um, so yeah, so I mean, the Alameda County program is up and running. It's, it's going pretty well. Um, you know, there's some glitches here and there where they try and do things that we don't like and we have to step in and have a conversation. Um, but uh, by and large, that's fine. And the bigger issue is um, at the state level, every legislative season, there are usually several surprise legislative attacks sponsored by PG&E and the other utilities that are always trying to find subtle and not so subtle ways to undermine the community choice programs, make it harder for the programs to compete. Um, and, and then a lot of those proceedings end up taking place. Sometimes it's legislative and very often it's the California Public Utility Commission, which I've kind of come to the conclusion is pretty much a captured regulatory agency that seldom ever goes against what the monopoly utility, PG&E, or, or the other two um, is, is asking of it. So there's, there's a lot there. There's definitely a lot there to keep busy with, though. I will say I, I've had there. There are other people who are really carrying the water on that right now, and I have been a little bit more, or quite a bit more, back burner with the community choice work um, in the past couple years um, while I was writing the book, and then once even after the book was out, um, I was pretty involved in campaigning for Bernie Sanders um, and and also doing some. Uh, some campaigning around the midterms, and then recently, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, have really turned my attention toward the voter suppression issue and doing some volunteer work to to try and um, to work with this organization whose mission it is to empower voters of color in heavy suppression states to be able to exercise their constitutional right to vote. Well, before we get into the reclaim our vote work that you've been doing around um, the midterms and and this general election, um, what's the through line here? I mean, have has the um, has the voting activism and the energy choice activism? Do those have what? What's the connection that you that that you embody between those two fronts? I'm the through line, I guess. (laughs) I I don't know. That's a great question. And I think, you know, as I as I reflect back on like everything I just spilled out, it it does seem a little like dilettante-ish and like, oh, first it's one thing and then it's another and then it's something else. Um, I, I just kind of go where I feel like there's an opportunity for me to make a contribution or fill some niche or some, you know, situation presents itself. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'd like to support that. Um, I mean, sometimes it's just something that seems so incredibly compelling that comes out of the blue. Like with when the pandemic erupted, um, I got involved in mutual aid. That was like an overnight thing. Like that wasn't even on my plate. Um, but I guess part of it is because I'm a writer and, and kind of in this like freelance writing and activism mode, I can 
I can decide what I want to do at any given moment. And that's probably good in some ways and, and bad in others because it, I guess, to be honest, it does always kind of give me the option of, of an out when, when the going gets tough. Maybe Erica can get going. Um, well, these are not particularly uh, easy but, issues. These are tough issues. So it, I would give yourself yeah, a little bit are. more credit than that. But, but I yeah. mean, I, I'm, I'm asking in particular about the voting work because, uh, for so many years, um, some of us had the privilege of thinking that doing electoral politics or, you know, organizing around elections. And this is this is probably just my little corner of the self-righteous you know, social justice <laughs> movement or whatever. But we're just kind of looked um, with side eye at electoral politics. And now that has come yeah. back to bite us. And we understand that actually, no, this is a front that uh, is very important, very worthy of, uh, you know, that whole saying, like, if voting changed anything, it would be illegal and we just kind of didn't want to engage with the system. Well, you know, I, I've been thinking so much, of course, in the last four years, as I'm sure many people have, about how to engage with the system in a principled and an effective and an ethical way. But it feels like at this point we have to, because if we abdicate that space, then who comes in? But, you know, corrupt, power hungry, uh, racist and uh, voter suppressing yeah. uh, minority rule. And so. I was just wondering about, you know, that kind of journey for you, if that was something that you've been interested in the whole time or if it's just been particularly poignant since uh, Trump or the extreme right uh, thrust of the Republican Party. Yeah, I know. I think I mean, you're right. I think a lot of people in the progressive left have had sort of a come to God moment around electoral <laughs> politics in the past few years and have concluded that like ignoring it, um, you know, trying to like take this sort of self-righteous high road is not really something we can afford to do anymore. I've always been kind of ambivalent about electoral politics. And like if there's a candidate I like, although I'm kind of struggling to think of one, Prior, prior to Bernie that I was <laughs> excited about enough to want to support. Um, but I, I've, I think I've always been open to it. I've never been one to like completely poo-poo it and write it off. Um, and, and partly that probably comes from being a lawyer too and feeling like, well, right. you know, ultimately what has to happen is that these laws and policies have to change. So it's it's not like an either or. I mean, of course, we need the community, the grassroots, the public organizing and making the demand. But then you also need the people in office who are going to be willing to surrender <laughs> or or even just agree. You know, maybe it won't even have to be a battle in the first place. You, it's so it's so important to have halfway decent people in office, and so dangerous to have certain people that we've seen in office in recent years. Um, and I think that's a little bit, I don't know. I mean, I think some Americans who kind of grew up in a fairly stable era of what some people might call democracy and others would probably, you know, I, I know people are already getting ready to call in and say we don't have a democracy, but on some level um, we, we do and, and take it, we take it for granted. And I think now we're, you know, I'm sort of starting to see how how fragile I've already I've always known how imperfect it is. I don't think I was so in touch until 2016 about how fragile it is. And it's also probably fragile because it is imperfect. Um, but I'm I'm more attached to our democratic institutions and the Constitution and things that I kind of took for granted um, than I than I ever have been before. I feel almost a desperate sense of not wanting to lose them and and a fear of what it could look like if we do. And, and we kind of already have lost some in in informal ways. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I found myself that. in, uh, I forget, I think it was April of 2017. Uh, of course, our trial in the FBI case was took place at the Oakland Federal Courthouse downtown on Clay Street in downtown Oakland. And I found myself back there in that courtyard protesting again when President Trump fired the head of the FBI. <laughs> and it was just fascinating to try to like try to understand what I was doing out there protesting because the head of the FBI was fired when I'd spent so much time in the same building uh, fighting to expose right. civil rights abuses by the very same agency. And, yeah. you know, I just kind of explained it to myself as 
because this attack is coming from the right. I mean, they're they're attacking the institution because it's too liberal, you know, and so um, that the attack from the right uh, and the the decapitating of the of the FBI, not that I would ever, you know, support yeah. the FBI, but, you know, as these no, institutions are being saying. leveled by, you know, by an attack from the extreme right, it's like, uh, we're going to lose the rule of law in this country. Yeah. Oh, I know what you're saying. And right. It wasn't so much about defending the FBI as challenging a the a budding dictator. Yep. That's what that's what Trump was, is trying to seize dictatorial powers. And so whatever form that takes, I'm going to be out there protesting that. All right, let me reintroduce you. Uh, this is Alicia Bales, and I'm in conversation tonight with Erica Edelson. She's a social justice activist and community organizer, author of Beyond Contempt, How Liberals Can Communicate Across the Great Divide. And she's also working with Reclaim Our Vote these days to combat voter suppression in the general election. Um, I want to talk about one more thing before we get to Reclaim Our Vote. And that is something that you brought up um, just now around the pandemic, which is what you called mutual aid. And I would love if you would uh, just talk about what mutual aid is and how you've seen communities uh, enacting mutual aid during the COVID pandemic. Yeah, um, I think I first became aware of the concept of mutual aid back after Hurricane Katrina when the federal response, FEMA, um, was was so atrocious and people were just really, really suffering without food, electricity, medicine, schools, the basics. And it took so long for the government to get its act together and get people the, the help that they needed. But then I started reading about these um, kind of like loose knit anarchists and other enclaves of people who just like went in and and did it. They did it like they brought the food and they organized communities and had, you know, schools on the fly and um, they, they took care of people. Um, and that was the first I had heard of mutual aid. So I'm, I'm kind of like thinking, like, how would I is there a definition? I guess I guess the way I, I would define it is. Like an informal system for taking turns, helping each other and getting help. Um, and so I guess it could take many forms. Like I think the Grange, you still have a Grange around here, right? I've driven by it in several in Anderson Valley. Yeah. And there's yeah. A, a lovely one I, in I Redwood Valley as well. Real, I think that's real like old school mutual aid, like barn raising and people just helping each other in the community. Like, so it's kind of just kind of like that general concept, helping people when you're in a position to help and receiving help when, when you're the one who needs help. And, and I love that. Um, so when the pandemic struck really early on, I, I remember like sitting and doing my doom scrolling on the computer, which I do way too much of. That is one of the I best terms to, you know, <laughs> that, that has come out of the I last know. year. Doom scrolling on social media. It's so true. Oh my gosh. Um, but I, you know, I was trying to learn about it, about the disease itself. And I remember early on, it was very clear that the, the high risk group were elderly and immune compromised people and people with certain pre-existing conditions. They were really, you know, warning those people to, to be careful and if possible, stay out of the grocery stores, have someone grocery shop for you if possible. So I just remember sitting there thinking like, well, how is this going to work? Who's going to grocery shop for them? Like, sure, some people have family around and some people have really nice neighbors who they know and, you know, maybe they can ask for help with that. But really, like, uh, you know, our, our social bonds are pretty frayed and especially in a city, and I kind of, Berkeley is kind of a city, like a lot of people don't know their neighbors and we weren't, we weren't doing all that great um, with our social networks and connections even before COVID hit. So I just had what started out as a very simple idea, but, but a little bit problematic. And so I'll tell the story of how it got corrected, um, which is that I just put up like a Google spreadsheet 
And one half of the spreadsheet was, if you need help with something, just say what you need. And then the other half was, if you, if you can help with any of these needs, you know, fill it, fill your name in. And then it was like self-serve. It's like find each other on this Google spreadsheet. Um, and it was mostly with the idea of people who would go shopping for each other, pick up medications, um, really basic stuff. And then I started pulling some other people that I know in um, from the community to help me with it initially because the spreadsheet like kept breaking and I'm not a really like high tech person and it was becoming like a stressful nightmare to manage the spreadsheet because the word got out really quickly and like hundreds of people were trying to get on this spreadsheet. Um, and then someone in our in our little group of sort of our little organizing committee very wisely pointed out that the spreadsheets were not optimal because people were sharing all this private information um, and vulnerabilities, you know, their, their age, their disabilities, um, their email, their phone number. So um, some, some people in the group ended up having a much better idea that really launched in a, in a much better direction where they, they, they set up a whole system where um, that information would not be public facing. And we put together like a, a team of volunteers who would do the matchmaking. So we call ourselves the matchmakers. And we would have access to all the information on, on both sides, you know, the people offering help and the people needing help. And we would create the matches and we would put the people in touch with each other. Um, then that, then that expanded because we found out, and oh, this is, this was like a, a very sad thing to discover that another big need in addition to the grocery shopping and, and running of errands, but there was a lot of people who contacted us and said, you know, I just need someone to talk to. I am really, really lonely. I I live alone. I can't see anyone now. My family is across the country, um, and I am really lonely. And I guess, I mean, I was incredibly sad about it, and I was also kind of suspecting that probably they had, many of them had been lonely long before the pandemic struck. So part of what we ended up doing was, um, what we called chat buddies, which was just people who would um, who would call each other and and just check in and have conversations on the phone and just provide some of that social interaction and comfort and solace to to whatever extent they could. Wow! Um, so just from so this idea up, of like putting a, a Google spreadsheet up for people to, to say if they needed help and say if they could provide help, it grew into this much larger collective and also an emotional support network for people. Was it people uh -huh. who you was it, it like in your immediate community or did how big did it grow? Well, ours was just Berkeley, although we we did sometimes get people from a little further out and we would we would match them up if we could but mutual aid is really inherently a, a local form of solidarity i mean especially because like with the pandemic and when you're grocery shopping for each other you know you got to just go to your local grocery store and bring the person the groceries so you know you're not going to have someone in in uh, upiah shopping for someone in eureka right it just has to be it has to be local um, but yeah, it did expand. And then the other thing um, we were able to do, um, not to a huge degree, but we, we did do a little bit of fundraising and kind of maintained a small little emergency cash fund for people who couldn't afford groceries. Because of course, so many people were, you know, losing, losing their jobs and were in dire straits. So we were able to do like little emergency $50 cash grants. But I would say even more often than that, and, and this was kind of one of the things that was beautiful and re renewed my faith in, in my community, was that some of the people who were offering to um, help get the groceries, they, they would say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm in a position to pay for the groceries and not get reimbursed. And so then we would, we would try and, and match people up based on that financial need and ability to, to help as well. So uh, so many people stepped up. I mean, we just had hundreds and hundreds of people. We, we had more people offering help than people asking for help. And that's a really good position to be in. I've had to step away from that moving up here. Um, but I, I suspect that that's still the case and, and that it's going strong. 
Well, and hey, now that you're living up here, I mean, I'm sure that the, our community here in Mendocino County or the, the several, the many communities of Mendocino County could definitely benefit from a similar mutual aid effort. <laughs> yeah. To-do list. It's, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's not super hard to start up. It's, um, it does take some work to manage. Like you do need kind of a dedicated core of, of matchmakers who are, are willing to keep on top of that. Um, but it's, it's totally doable. It's, um, I know a lot of people are focused on the election now and maybe it's something that, um, that we can think about after the election and the aftermath and all of that settles down because I guess, uh, while listening to your excellent programs that you do about COVID on this radio station, I'm more and more getting the sense that this is something that we're going to be living with for much longer than I was hoping. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that yeah. I think the need is going to be there. And we're getting kind of more and more threadbare as it goes on. It's like the, the effects of, um, the, the different deprivations that we're living through right now are going to be more and more intense and acute for people, um, especially financially, economically, um, and right. hopefully, hopefully not right. health wise. I mean, we seem to be doing okay here for right now if people keep keep up their adherence to the the guidelines you know we all seem to be a pretty conscious community and trying to do the best for each other so hopefully we'll we'll keep our our health situation in check but boy financially and economically yeah. people are hurting so definitely uh yeah. it would yeah. be much better if we could turn our attention toward how to help each other and create these very practical systems for connecting those who can help with those who need help. Uh, we probably learn a lot about the folks in our community as well. Um, there seems to be all over the country an increasing sort of dehumanization of each other and kind of pigeonholing of each other into these roles, you know, like, uh, you know, right wing militia versus Black Lives Matter mob or, you know, whatever it is that people are starting to call each other instead of neighbor. Um, and so this kind of organizing, mm -hmm. I think, probably transcends some of that because you're not asking for any, uh, you know, requirement for your political belief or, you know, in order to ask for help or in order to offer help, um, I think that that's kind of a right. level where people can actually transcend some of that uh, very meta kind of polarization that these camps were being divided into and actually learn more about who lives here and, and what the real needs are of our community. Yeah, I, I think what you're raising is a really important point because I don't, you know, because I wrote this book, people are asking me all the time of like, what, what, what do I think are the key drivers of polarization? Like, it's so clear we have this extreme toxic polarization and we're like, how did we get here? And I don't really have a complete answer to that, but I do think that part of it is that because our social bonds and our communities ties have become so weak, I think that people end up over identifying with their political ideology because it's like, it's something, it's something to belong to, to be a part of, whether it's, you know, you're on team MAGA or something on the left. Um, it's like you, you get your kind of needs for identity and belonging fulfilled in ways that in a healthy society would be fulfilled just by being a member of society and being in community, in solidarity um, with your neighbors, with your community. Um, and that would provide kind of meaning, purpose, belonging, all these like really, really basic human needs um, that when they're not met, we start trying to meet them in ways that aren't really very productive or good for society. And I think the, the toxic polarization is, is one of those, one of the very unfortunate byproducts of that. So, yeah. So I think what you're saying is um, right. Like if we can, if, if maybe one silver lining of the pandemic is that we can start trying to repair our communities, um, get to know each other again and be helping each other and sort of re-establishing re goodwill and trust and just seeing each other as human beings. Um, that, that can really, that can really help. I think that is important. It feels kind of like, uh, that's like kind of soft and squishy and you know, which where, where's the political bottom line there. But I, I do think that that's important. And I think that 
I don't know. For me, I, I, what becomes more important for me as an activist over over time, and and maybe as a result of having been involved in one too many losing battles, um, I'm starting to value more. Not just fighting for the more beautiful world that I want, but building it, like just like literally creating the world that I want, or at least kind of the scaffolding for it. So that as other things, as things start to fall apart, there'll be like a positive model there that can be scaled up and it'll be kind of be there ready to help people. I think that's like what permaculture is. I'm sure there's a permaculture community up here and I consider myself kind of a a wannabe (laughs) and future permaculture farmer, but I'm really drawn to that aspect of permaculture where it's like, it's really about creating what we want instead of just complaining about it. And there's a place for complaining about it and there's a place for critiquing and there's a place for trying to change policies and laws and get good people elected. And in addition to that, I think there is a place for just, just do it, just do it yourself. Let's see, let's see what you can do. Building it, building your alternative society. I think that's really a a cornerstone of mutual aid is not relying on somebody else to come in and take care of, of, of your community, but actually doing the legwork and making sure that your community is taken care of. So uh, I'll just let listeners know once again, I'm Alicia Bales here on a fifth Thursday when we have just kind of an open hour. And our guest is Erica Edelson. She Uh is a social justice activist and a community organizer, author of Beyond Contempt, How Liberals Can Communicate Across the Great Divide, and also a new newly minted resident of Mendocino County. So some some new and visionary activist energy coming in here. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for moving here. <laughs> and um, oh, thank you for thank you for having it here ready for me to move into. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, Reclaim Our Vote and uh, voter suppression uh, and the work that you're doing to um, to make sure every vote is counted in this election. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that, and and I'm gonna and um, also include a pitch for people to get involved at the 11th hour here if they if they haven't yet. Um, yeah, so voter suppression, of course, goes back you know way way back over a hundred years, um, and it it a lot of it was um, ameliorated in through the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, that really tried to uh, get get a handle on, get, get control over some of the heavy suppression states, particularly in the Deep South, and had a lot of um, federal oversight by the Department of Justice about how they were running their elections. Um, but alas, in 2013, there was a Supreme Court case that struck down some very key parts of the Voting Rights Act. And so that really liberated the suppression states to go back to some of their their old ways and and also find new and improved ways of getting away with setting things up in a way that would disproportionately create disproportionate obstacles for voters of color. Um, Some of the common forms that that takes are um, like having photo ID requirements when you go to vote. Um, because far, far more black voters do not have those IDs, although that's changing. I think most people are now realizing they have to have that. Um, Another thing is something called like exact match of names, which means um, that that your ID has to have the exact same name as, as what you use to register to vote. So if you're if your driver's license says Frank James Smith, but you're, you registered to vote as Frank J. Smith, sorry, can't vote. Um, really like, you know, just trivial, trivial things that are used to keep people out. Um, lots of polling places um, have been closed down and again, very disproportionately in black and Latino neighborhoods. Um, so that's why you hear, you know, these issues of people who are, online sometimes for hours and and even then end up having to leave without having voted. 
Um, and then the other really big, I, I have a long, long list here of different forms of voter disenfranchisement, but the two others I'll mention because they're big are um, felony disenfranchisement, which currently there are 6 million people in the country who can't vote because they have a, a felony record. Um, and, and the other one is purging voters from the rolls. So a couple of states, or maybe, maybe, maybe more than a couple, but I know of at least two where if a voter hasn't voted in the last two federal elections, they just get cut off the rolls. And then, oh, lo and behold, when they do go to vote next time, it's like, well, you're not registered to vote. And the person's like, what are you talking about? Um, that last one that I mentioned, the purging of voters from the rolls, was, I, I believe, one of the biggest reasons that this organization, Reclaim Our Vote, was founded. Um, it's, it's only a couple of years old, or it started like right before the 2018 midterms. And I think the initial impetus for that was to call the, the woman who started the organization, Andrew Miller, who's really, really an incredible visionary. What she did was she started getting the lists of the voters who'd been kicked off, who'd been deregistered. Um, and she organized an army of volunteers to start calling them and letting them know that this had happened so that they would have enough time to re-register in time for the 2018 midterms. Um, and that turned out to be really, really successful. So she describes Reclaim Our Vote as fighting voter suppression one voter at a time, right? So, I mean, there's lawsuits and there's all kinds of things going on to fight voter suppression, and they're all incredibly important. What this organization does is it does it one voter at a time. It is literally calling Um I'm going to say millions now because we passed our we passed our one million mark on on calls and we're, and we're still going strong um, and letting every person know what their status is um, and what they need to do to make sure to vote. Um, now at this point in the game, it's too late for anyone who had been purged to register because we're we're too close to the election. So a few weeks ago, the whole campaign shifted toward just more standard get out the vote. And it, it's completely nonpartisan. We're not calling and telling people who we think they should vote for or saying anything of a, of a political or partisan nature. We're just saying, hey, this election's coming up. Um, we want you to know that things are a little different this year. Um, you, there are these early voting locations. Would you like me to look up your early voting location? Be sure to bring your ID when you go to vote. Um, Here's where your where your polls is. It might have changed since the last election, so make sure you're going to the correct polling place. And it was, we're really urging people to take advantage of the early voting locations, which some of your listeners might have been seeing news reports in the last few weeks of like this unbelievable turnout at the early voting locations. I won't say I won't say claim our vote can take all the credit for that. I think there's a lot of reasons people are making sure to get in and, and vote early, but but that is what we've been pushing um, because for for two reasons. One is we don't want we didn't want everyone showing up on election day, and since we know there are not an adequate number of polls um, in certain areas. And my God, imagine now that we're seeing all the people showing up at the early voting sites. The, the thought of all those people. If they all waited and tried to show up on November third, it it would be a, a complete disaster. Yeah, it to, it's so totally like thinking about pulling an all nighter to get your homework done. I mean, there's just not enough time in the in, in on election no. day to to process all of those voters. Right. Yeah. So we've been pushing that. Um, and then the other thing we do is, you know, one of the really really whacked things, and this is partly pandemic related. Um, the, the absentee voting is is really really complicated, and I, I'm going to have to assume that in some states it's complicated by design. It's different in every state. Sometimes even within a state, it's different by county <laughs> in terms of the requirements for how do you get your ballot, who's eligible for getting a ballot, um, when do you have to have it back in, does it have to be signed, do you need a witness, do you need two witnesses, do you need to put it in one envelope or two envelopes. Where do you bring it? I mean, there's like so many details. It's like you have to have a PhD in absentee voting. Um, 
So we kind of discourage people from absentee voting um, and, you know, try and get them to do the early voting. But some people either have to or just really want to do absentee. And then we are there to give them all the information to make sure that they can do that successfully. So this is, um, um, so Reclaim Our Vote is a national organization you're looking at, um, because of course we know the voting system is decentralized by state. So you guys figure out uh, who might be vulnerable and you contact them in each state and kind of walk them through the process to make sure that they can, can vote and have their vote counted? Yes. Well, we work in eight states. We don't we don't work in all 50. Maybe maybe someday. Um, actually, I think we will be working. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But right now we are in eight states that are um, heavy suppression states. Um, some that, you know, you would think of like Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, but also um, Texas and Arizona and Florida. Did I mention them all? Is that all? Yeah, that's seven. Um, <laughs> seven. I'm missing one. I'm missing one. That's okay. Uh, but yeah, so the oh Texas. Did I say Texas? Yeah, Texas. Um, yeah. So we're calling. We're calling into the eight states, and even that is a real handful. Just yeah. like having, and I was not part of this, but there was a team of people who had to, you know, like write the scripts and get all the information for all the details in in each state, and that was a real, real piece of work. Um, so what, what Reclaimer Vote did was, um, up, up until a few months ago, it was mostly sending postcards to people with all of the information. So we had an army of people all over the country because, oh, so let me clarify, even though we, we work in these eight states, meaning we contact the voters who live in those eight states. But the volunteers for Reclaim Our Vote can live anywhere. And so we have volunteers all over the country, right? So I'm, California is not a suppression state. We don't work, but I am, I and many, many other people um, are working remotely from California. Um, so it's a great, it's a great COVID form of activism because it's, everything's done remotely. We sit in our homes and we write our postcards and we phone bank and text. And so at this point, everything, we, we've done all our postcard and we, we sent out six and a half million postcards. Um, and we are now doing our phone banking. The goal was to make a million calls. We've already surpassed that, but we are going to, we're going to keep going. And we've got like basically marathon phone banks running tomorrow, all through the weekend and Monday and Tuesday. And we are going to be calling up until the polls close in Arizona <laughs> on Tuesday. Um, so for anyone out there who, you know, feels like this seems really important and wants to have an opportunity um, to get involved and, and have an impact on this election, um, not only because of what outcome you might hope this election has, but also just for the underlying civil rights issue, right? I mean, black black voters matter. For, for me, doing this work is part of my commitment to supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. It's just, it's another form. And it's kind of incredible. It's, it's kind of like, wait, is this 1965 or 2020? Like I thought the civil rights activists of the last generation already won this. And, you know, so it's like kind of crazy to have to be doing it again, but, but that's where we're at. So if either the outcome of this election or just like the core civil rights issue of, of the right to vote moves you, then what I want to say is there is absolutely still an opportunity for you to, to get involved. Um, and it, it's going to be fun. We're going to do these marathon sessions. We, we, you, can, you can call on your own, but also a lot of people get on these big Zoom rooms. Um, and we call together and then we, you know, we take little breaks and we chat and we ask each other questions and we support each other. So we, we try and have some community around it. And what's and there's, a, there's a lot of people doing it. It's great. What's a typical call like? I mean, uh, I know, sure, people want to help out and do phone banking. But when it, when you sit down and, you know, see the whites of, of your phone's eyes, and you're like, mm, I don't know if I really want to talk to strangers in Texas. No, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, I got to say, I've done a lot of phone banking in my life. And it has never been my favorite thing. But this is by far the easiest phone banking I've ever done. And the reason is that we don't have to convince anyone of anything, I'm not calling for a candidate or a campaign or an issue. 
and simply giving someone information. And so like people are just like, oh, okay, great. You know, they're, they're basically just appreciative of it. And it's, it's just straightforward information. Also, 90% of the time we're just leaving, we're leaving voicemails. Very rarely, you know, people don't pick up their phones. Um, so very rarely are you engaged in a conversation with someone, but you know, when you are, it, it tends to be easy and people tend to be pretty, pretty nice and appreciative. So it's mostly just reading the script. Um, and so some people might be thinking, well, that doesn't sound that effective, but for whatever reason, um, Reclaim Our Vote, which is very data-driven, has found that even leaving these voicemails, it, it does prompt people, it gives them the information that they need and it prompts them to go vote. And so they were getting in the midterms and the precincts they were calling, they were getting like a 75% turnout rate. And, and even in the, they did a thing for the Georgia primary just a few months ago, and they were getting like 70% of people to vote in a primary, which is unheard of. I mean, that's a very high voting rate for a, for a general election. And it's absolutely unprecedented in a primary. So it leaving these messages does seem to work. It's easy to do. And um, the more we do, the more impact we will have. So I, can I can I give out yeah, a make, website? Yeah, definitely. And, and also this idea of the, the data-driven activism is, is pretty exciting. It's like, we know it works. We have kept track of the numbers. We measured it. It does make an impact. So yeah. So if people want to find out more about Reclaim Our Vote, where, where, where do they go? Yeah. So um, I people should go to votinginformation.org. That's all one word, votinginformation.org forward slash R-O-V phone bank central. That's all one word, R-O-V. That stands for Reclaim Our Vote. So votinginformation.org forward slash R-O-V phone bank central. And you will see there all of the phone banks that we are doing in these final, in this final 11th hour sprint, including our weekend Kalapalooza. <laughs> <laughs> so it's votinginformation.org slash R-O-V phone bank. Central phone bank central for call a palooza <laughs> for call a palooza and, and all the other days and you sign up, you'll get a zoom link. We'll train you up in minutes and you'll be, and you'll be on your way and you can, and you can do this. And it's just really, really a great thing to do. Can people participate if they don't have access to zoom? Can they do it over their phone? Well, you there are self-serve materials on at Phone Bank Central at that website. And so and you know, like I started phone banking without even going through a training. It just kind of depends on how confident you are. The materials are designed so that you can just look at the materials and start making calls on your own. So the answer is is yes, although I do understand for some people that might feel like you know, a little intimidating. Yeah. Um, although I think after the first couple calls, you know, you sort of break the ice and, and it, it gets a little easier. Yeah. And this is it. We've yeah. just got what, four, no, five days left. Yes, this is it. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I keep, I keep seeing these memes on Facebook. I don't actually really like them because I don't like to like guilt trip people into, into activism, but they're, they're kind of funny. It's like, don't wake up Wednesday morning and say to yourself, gosh, you know, why, why didn't I do more? Right. Regret. <laughs> well, um, and then also Wednesday morning, we might not really have any results yet. I mean, this is a very strange yeah. election and uh, we're all under uh, pandemic conditions. And so all of these mail-in and early voting that's happening. Some of the ballots are going to be uh, being counted for days after the the election, yeah. the, the polls close. So um, have you heard anything about organizing that's happening for the aftermath of the election? 
Well, I know that there is a ton. Um, the one thing I've taken a look at a little bit is there's a website called protecttheresults.com. And they have like one of these maps where you can find a local event. Um, and I do see one, an event on November 4th called Count Every Vote Mendocino Coast in um, Fort Bragg at, let's see, Oh, I say they want it's at five o'clock in Fort Bragg, but they're not giving out the details because they want you to sign up. And I think it's also a like we're going to do this if we need to kind of event. And if everything goes swimmingly, then then the, they won't have to have the event. Right. There's like events planned for all over the country through this organizing website. What's it called? ProtectTheResults.com. Yeah. ProtectTheResults.com. I mean, I heard that there was like already six or 700 events planned around the country. Um, I, I imagine a lot of the indivisible chapters um, are are hosting events, so I, I wasn't able to find anything going on locally except for this this one in Fort Bragg. But but there may be, and maybe a caller can come in and and can call in and tell us what it what is happening locally. Yeah, we've got about five minutes left for the show. It, it goes really fast, believe it or not. It's an hour, but it, it goes by really fast. Um, we can go ahead and open up the phone lines. And if there's anybody uh, listening who does know about after the uh, election day uh, events or organizing in the aftermath here in Mendocino County, you can call in. It's 895-2448. I think we have time for one call. 707-895-2448. Uh, and, uh, and, or, or anything else if you just have, if you were inspired by, um, Erica's stories or if you have something to add or something to disagree with, uh, I'm all for that too. Um, give a call in. Uh, but in the meantime, we've just got a few minutes left in the show and I wonder if you just want to, uh, talk a little bit about sort of wrapping it up and, and how you're, how you're feeling about what's, what's coming down the pike in terms of your activism well, and organizing and, and your priorities. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to um, like spill my existential anxiety all over everyone. So <laughs> I'm not really sure what to say. I'm quite concerned. I'm, I'm also a little bit, hopeful, but I just, I want to be ready. I want to give it my all. And then I want to be ready for whatever happens. Um, all right. Well, we, and, we actually then, do have a call. Do you want to go ahead and take it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good evening, caller. You're live on the air. Caller, are you there? I am. Let, hey. let me turn my radio down. Right, uh, welcome. I'd like to talk about the, uh, I, I'm encouraged by this conversation and, and uh, KTLX folks. Do your piggy bank, uh, grab some change, send it into the station. Free voices, free, free thought, uh, free country. Uh, without it, we're, we're, we're really, um, uh, we're in the outhouse. Uh, let's talk about the disenfranchisement of, uh, the inmates of Mendocino County Jail and the fact that the, uh, registrar of voters refuses to send ballots to those that are only convicted of misdemeanors. She refuses to send ballots to uh, hundreds of people who are disenfranchised in the Mendocino County Jail, who I'm sure uh, have a political voice because they're being uh, marginalized by society. Thank All you right. so much for your program. All right. Welcome to Mendocino County, and uh, you're going to look forward to a very vibrant political climate up here. This is the home of Earth First. We protect the forest. We protect, protect the free voice. That's what we do. All Before right. Wax. Thanks for the call, caller. Really appreciate it. Love that vote of support for KZYX. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Well, um, that sounds like an important issue. I would encourage people to contact their um, someone on the uh, board of board of supervisors for yeah. the county and and try and troubleshoot point. that. Yeah, I would really like to find out more about that too because it's the second time that I've heard that uh, issue brought up. So uh-huh. uh, we just have about 60 seconds left. So why don't you finish your thought about next steps and then we'll say goodbye for the evening. Okay. Well, what I, what I would like to say though, since, since that caller brought this up is something that I forgot to mention, which is another thing Reclaim Our Vote is involved in is um, an, an app called See Something, Say Something, where people can report exactly the kind of thing that this caller just alerted us to. Oh, neat. Um, so it's see. It's csay.com, S-E-E-S-A-Y.com. 
And you can look at that and you'll see all the reports that are starting to come in from around the country of these voter suppression issues. Um, and you can file a report. And so I caller, right. if you're still listening, I encourage you to get on there and, and make a little report and then someone can look into it. All right. Well, Erica Edelson, thank you so much for having this conversation on this Thursday evening. Um, we're going to say goodbye for now, but I'm sure we will see you around soon now that you are living here in Mendocino okay. County. And this has been Alicia Bales. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Stay tuned next for The Treehouse coming up at 8 o'clock. First is One Minute Theater in just about five seconds. Thanks for listening. Something's got to give.